Well, good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir, Alberta. And I will be hosting this webinar for the Alberta Prosperity Project entitled COP27. What really happened? Uh, for those of you who are wondering why on earth the Alberta Prosperity Project will be hosting a webinar about COP27, well, I'm going to tell you because that's what I like to do. This is, the, this is called the Alberta Prosperity Project for a reason. It's because we believe in a prosperous future for this province and actually for the rest of the provinces and, you know, globally, but we have to worry about our own backyard first. Part of prosperity is wading through uh, tons of information and finding out which paths governments and organizations are trying to put us on uh, and whether or not they're actually leading us to a place of prosperity, of freedom and prosperity. And so delving into the COP27 um, uh, summit, I guess you'd call it, I don't know what you call it, meeting, is a really good way to do that. Because for those of you who don't know, COP27 is a, uh, it's a gathering of world leaders. Canada, I believe, sent 337 or something to this, to the one this year, where they talk about climate change and what they're going to do and how their governments are going to deal with the issue of climate change. Um, there's a lot of really crazy stuff in there. And I'm very happy that we have uh, this guest with us tonight because he's way better at dissecting this stuff than I am. So I would like to, uh, I guess, welcome Mr. Robert Lyman to the webinar and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for inviting me uh, to speak to you. My pleasure. So I actually have a profile prepared that I'm going to read to introduce you this time. So here goes. Uh, Robert Lyman is an economist with 35 years experience as an analyst, policy advisor and senior manager in the Canadian federal government. He began his career as a member of Canada's Foreign Service and had posting in Caracas, Venezuela and Washington, D.C. from 1985 to 2006. He managed organizations that were engaged in energy and climate change policy development and program delivery. He also has 11 years experience as a private consultant conducting policy research and analysis on energy and transportation issues as a principal for Entrans Policy Research Group. For the last seven years, he's been a frequent contributor to the publications of the Friends of Science, a Calgary-based independent organization concerned about climate change-related issues. He contributes occasional articles to the Financial Post comment page and essays to the United Kingdom-based Global Warming Policy Forum. He has testified before the House of Commons Committees on Energy and Trade Issues, and he resides in Ottawa, Canada. Wow, Ottawa. How's Ottawa these days? I, I feel like I was just there. Uh, well, it's uh, quite a bit milder in terms of the temperature, but uh, the, uh, the city is very quiet these days. And not, that doesn't count the controversies. Yeah, last last time I was there, it was uh, bitter cold and it was quite quite noisy. But the food was great. So, um, I'm going to... Do you mind if I call you Bob? Certainly, that's fine. Okay. You can call me anything you want, just don't call me late for... Actually, no, I'm late for everything, so you can call me that. So, I, I find this uh, really interesting that you were actually involved with the federal government of Canada in some of the climate change stuff. Um, like what, how, how does that, how, how do you come from that kind of background and then into um, where, where you're at now? Well, I spent 25 years on and off in natural resources, Canada and its predecessor, energy mines and resources, Canada. Um, and so I worked in several different areas of energy policy um, in the late, uh, 1980s, uh, when uh, climate change first became a public policy issue, I was the uh, associate uh, director general in the energy policy group within uh, the uh, Natural Resources Canada. And uh, I was the first co-chair of the federal provincial committee on uh, climate change policy. This was when it was first beginning and people really didn't know how significant it was going to be. Um, the uh, later on from uh, uh, 1995 to 2002, I was the um, senior director of the oil division. So I was dealing with uh, not only the economic issues associated with 
all aspects of oil in Canada, upstream and downstream. But we were also at that point being asked to find, well, contribute information as to how you could reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the oil and gas sector. And, you know, how to, to what extent one uh, could use carbon dioxide capture and storage as a technology uh, and what other types of techniques might be effective in terms of reducing emissions. Uh, later, I, I, I moved to Transport Canada, and I was the Director General of Environmental Affairs at Transport Canada, where I was dealing with, with um, all aspects of, environment, of the, how the transportation sector affects the environment. And of course, uh, much of that at that time was uh, the contribution that we were making to the development of policy uh, with respect to reducing emissions in the, uh, in the transportation sector. Um, so, I, in other words, I've really been involved with climate change primarily from the energy and transportation perspective. Uh, and uh, uh, I was you know, involved in managing some programs that tried to look at ways in which you could advance the technology of, of, of vehicles, for example, to try to reduce emissions from them as well. Uh, I can it from several different angles. So during that time, um, I'm going to assume that those portfolios that you that you worked in they they changed and evolved a bit. What do you do? You have any comments on how you know the the the, the climate change department or even the, the the department of the environment how it changed from back in the mid '80s until what we see today? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, in the 1980s and, and throughout most of the 1990s, uh, climate change policy in the federal government was either managed by Natural Resources Canada as an energy policy issue or co-managed by Natural Resources Canada and, Envir and Environment Canada as a, a joint issue because it dealt with both the economy and the environment. But by um, around the year 2000, uh, as a result of, uh, you know, directions from the government of the day, the leadership over uh, climate issues transferred entirely to, to Environment Canada. Uh, and from then on, uh, energy policy considerations became much less uh, significant in terms of how decisions were made. Um, in the 1990s, when we were uh, advising on, on the types of uh, responses that Canada should make to uh, the you know, potential climate issues, uh, we were approaching it essentially from, I, I guess what you call an economic perspective. That, that is, we were looking at for the costs and benefits of what Canada would do, uh, and to the extent that we were do, to do anything, what were the most cost-effective ways of uh, reducing emissions? Um, it was a um, it was the way that we tended to approach other uh, energy policy issues. But subsequently, I, in my view. Um, uh, the government has changed its approach and, and uh, it no longer uh, focuses on, on issues related to costs and benefits. It, it now tends to treat climate change almost as an ideological issue where it doesn't really matter what it costs to reduce emissions because, you know, in theory, you know, we've got to save the planet, so it doesn't matter what it costs. Um, and that, that switch from tackling things as an economic policy issue to one of dealing with it really as a kind of ideological environmental issue has changed the way in which things are done um, at the public policy level in Ottawa with respect to almost all the environmental issues. So it's, it's changed. <laughs> saying it's changed is uh, it's an understatement. So what we're seeing now is this, like you said, a ideological pursuit of one goal and that one goal is to be net zero and reduce all uh, output of carbon dioxide the food of plants um i i i didn't really think about it this way until i uh i, I heard mr alex epstein speak at one point uh, what i'd like to see from our government is to have a department whose goal is to um, make sure that the path that we're on as a society is moving towards flourishing, right? A, a prosperous and free civilization where we, you know, we're, we're, we're flourishing as human beings. Um, we're using our resources responsibly. 
you know, not dumping garbage everywhere and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, our goal is to be prosperous as human beings. But that's not the case right now. Uh, the case is a um, maniacal crusade against carbon dioxide. And that is uh, the underlying, well, actually, I mean, that's the main issue in the forefront at COP, all of the, the COP summits. Uh, and COP27 was no different. So as you mentioned, this has nothing to do with cost benefit analysis or anything like that on a financial level or on a human impact level for that matter. And that's very apparent by what I read in your brief there. Some of the costs are just, I mean, they're mind boggling. Some of the, some of the wealth transfers that we're talking about here are more than the GDP of three or four countries combined. It's, it's insane. So I guess with that said, I, I'll, I'll ask you, there's been a lot of news about COP27. So what was it all about this year? What, what's different than, than it has been? Well, first, uh, COP, it's called COP27 because it was, it's the 27th conference that has been held uh, under the auspices of called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So it's, it's the gathering, as you said earlier, it's a gathering of um, officials and uh, uh, politicians and, and people from uh, private sector and non-governmental organizations that happens every year to try to deal with the various um, outstanding issues. Um, the, uh, the primary focus of every uh, conference of the parties uh, up until now has been primarily on what's, what's called mitigation. Uh, that is trying to find a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which allegedly contribute to, to uh, catastrophic uh, climate change. Um, and a lesser extent to deal with adaptation issues. That is uh, finding a way, uh, assuming that we can't stop all of the uh, adverse effects of, of climate change uh, to adapt the economy and the society so that uh, we re reduce the adverse effect. Um, this year at, at COP27, the primary focus was, was not just on those two topics, but also on the third area, which is financing. Uh, ah. And um, the, the, to some extent, that's been of interest since 2010, because in 2010, uh, at the COP held that year, it was agreed that the, uh, the developed countries, the, the wealthier countries, if you will, uh, should uh, contribute to finance the uh, emission reduction measures that are being taken in the developing countries, the poorer countries, and that they should aim uh, at, at least to spend $100 billion per year funding that. Um, Wait, well, can, you, can that. you repeat that again? Is that with a B or an M? That's with a B, $100 billion a year at least. Now, and that was to uh, take effect as of 2020 and it was to prevail through the 2020 to 24, 2024 period. Uh, they never have actually reached that total. Um, but in 2021, the collective uh, contributions of the richer countries has about $70 billion. Um, by the way, Canada has committed $5.3 billion to that. So. We're, we're up there among the, the largest spenders. Um, but this year, the uh, well, sorry, at, at COP26 in Glasgow last year, the developing countries said that we should be looking forward to the period beyond 2024, so 2025 to 2030. And they said, based on their analysis, that the uh, amount of money that the developed countries should be contributing every year should be at least one3 trillion dollars now with a t as, with a t now before you go any further i want to give people a, a visual here so 100 billion dollars folks close your eyes and imagine this 100,000 100,000 stacks of 1 million dollars each 1.3 trillion dollars is 1.3 million stacks of one million dollars that one one point three trillion dollars is uh that's well it's less than the u.s national debt no that's it's, an that's, insane uh, amount of money 
Yeah, yes, it is. The, the Canadian national debt right now is about $1.1 trillion. Uh, that's for all of all time. And uh, so, but, but this is what countries, no, I mean, this is not something every individual country would be allegedly spend. It's what the, the collectivity of them is, would be. And, and so, um, well, let me say, that's not going to happen. That is, that's absolutely not going to happen. But that's what their, their demand is. Um, and, uh, and, and that's just the beginning, because that is the amount of money that they say is necessary to help them uh, mitigate the effects of climate change. There's the new issue that, that uh, has been particularly became prominent this year is something called uh, compensation for loss and damages. Now, what, what that means is that the developing countries are saying, look, you guys in the uh, industrialized countries uh, are the ones that over the course of the past two centuries have uh, created these emissions and therefore contributed to the increased concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So you are the ones that are responsible for any adverse effects, including what we think are the weather changes that are caused by climate change. So whenever we have uh, an adverse weather event or a drought or a flood or whatever in our countries, that's your fault. And you now are responsible to compensate us for the adverse effects of those weather events, floods, these are, drought, whatever. Now, these are climate reparations. The climate reparations, yes. I mean, the, the problem with that, I mean, one of the many, many problems with that is that there's no possible way to calculate how much th that would cost. It, it basically becomes whatever they say it will cost. Um, and I, I should clarify here, these are the these demands are being made to the what are called the developed countries, the, the countries that are listed in the, uh, in the Annex 1 or Annex 2 of, of the United Nations Framework Convention. That how does how not, many are there? Tw about 24. So the okay. 24 countries that would pay. That does not include China. China would be a recipient. India would be a recipient. Saudi Arabia would be a recipient. It's, these are mainly just the uh, OECD countries that would be doing the paying. Um, so how much does China pay? China doesn't pay anything. The largest single uh, emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. No, it doesn't make any contribution to, to assisting the uh, emission reduction measures in the other developing countries. Um, and so, and that obviously is a huge issue. So the, this, this combination, the discussion of original financing, which they want to boost up to 1.3 trillion a year, plus the, uh, compensation for loss and damages, which is an, uh, there is no number you can put on that because it's infinite. Um, that was what, uh, the developing countries wanted to have agreement on at COP27. Uh, the uh, developed countries, including primarily the European Union and the United States, tried to keep that entire issue off the agenda. because said, look, this, this is not going to go anywhere. This is not credible. So let's not even talk about it. But uh, there was so much pressure brought to bear by the president of Egypt, because Egypt was the chair of, the, of COP27, and, and some other countries, supported by Canada. It, it was put on the agenda. Uh, and there was agreement reached that there will be an effort made to deal with this issue at all future COPs. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and be controversial because that's what I do. This does not sound like a reasonable and science-backed, evidence-backed plan to benefit humanity or the planet. This sounds to me like a wealth redistribution scheme where people are made to feel virtuous for destroying their lives and their livelihoods and their, and their industries and their respective countries. It has been uh, clear from the statements of the United Nations um, uh, leaders, um, official representatives for several years now that uh, increasing the transfer of funds from the richer countries to the developing countries 
is one of the primary objectives of, of the climate uh, policy agenda. That's what this is what it's all about. And I guess it would work because if we don't send or if we send all of our wealth and prosperity to other countries, um, we can't do anything that even exist that causes any sort of an impact to the environment. And I would argue that what we're seeing now with some of these numbers we're hearing and some of the, the ideas that are presented, this is not so much about reducing our environmental impact on the planet, but more about reducing our human impact on the planet. Uh, and the only way to reduce human impact is to reduce the number of humans, uh, which, which uh, uh, you know, energy poverty certainly would do. So what does this mean for, for Canada? Like, we have a, a very robust oil and gas industry here. Um, we we power nations, and we do it quite responsibly. What what does this goal mean for Canada? How would we achieve these goals having all this energy here? Well, first, let me r remind you that um, because something that's agreed in the United Nations does not necessarily mean that uh, countries have to follow it. The, the uh, people often refer to um, COP21 in, in Paris, uh, which was the uh, conference at which it was agreed that the countries of the world would, in principle, try to uh, avoid an increase in global average global temperatures to no more than two degrees Celsius from what they were during pre-industrial times. That was, that, was, that was this kind of a philosophical uh, agreement. But it was also agreed that um, there would be no um, internationally legally imposed uh, targets. In other words, all of the targets are, are those that are decided upon independently by countries in plans that they submit to the United Nations every five years. So uh, no matter what is agreed at, at the United Nations, it doesn't affect us at all unless our government, our Canadian government, decides that this is what it wants to do. And so uh, when we talk about the, 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 uh, the, the goals, the 2030 goals or the 2040 goals, 2050 net zero goals, those are goals of the federal government of Canada. Those are, those are not ones that are being imposed upon us by any kind of an international treaty. So, so that's what I, it's really important to know that this it, as, as much as we can, can open our, our mouths in, in awe at, at the foolishness of what might be decided at the United Nations, that isn't what affects us. What affects us is the way that the federal government here decides to take that and use mm -hmm. it as, as justification for, what it, for its policies. Now, yeah, how, they, what, they sign on the dotted line and obligate us to fulfill that, uh, those, those dreams. No, but they don't. They don't. They don't have to sign on any dotted line. They decide simply that it is by voluntary policy. This is what we're going to do, and and that's what they're doing. In fact, that is one of the greatest myths uh, that is available now in the public in Canada. That somehow, you know, because of the Paris Agreement, we're obligated to reduce emissions. No, we're not. All that all those are are voluntary targets that are in the plan that was submitted by the government of Canada. We are doing this to ourselves. Um, now, now, of course, what are we doing? Well, um, that's that, that's a subject for a very long uh, interview. But, but it, I mean, in essence, um, the Trudeau government now has said that uh, we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by um, forty-five percent uh, by uh, by by twenty thirty, and we will achieve effectively zero use. Uh, of oil and natural gas and coal by, by 2050. That's what they've said. Um, uh, the other thing you have to be aware of that is that we have been signing on to targets for emission reduction about every five years since 1990, and we've never met a single one of those targets. So they can promise all they want, but they're just targets. They're, they're things that can only be accomplished as, if the you, know, uh, you manage somehow to bring about a reduction in the, the use of hydrocarbons in Canada. Interesting. And Canada, we're, we're in a very unique position here 
where the provinces actually have constitutional jurisdiction over the development use and use of their own resources. But here we have a federal government saying, no, you can't develop and use your resources, um, which in, in my books is very unconstitutional. It's infringing on uh, provincial jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, that maybe we have something there as long as we have a strong premier that would uh, stand up for the province. Well, remember that um, while you're quite right, under the Canadian Constitution, the, the uh, ownership and management of natural resources in the subsoil uh, is under the jurisdiction of the provinces. Um, but in the environment is an area of shared jurisdiction. And the federal government has used that uh, uh, part of the Constitution to say that it can assert its control over environmental issues. Uh, now, the reason why, uh, well, one of the reasons why there tends to be such a focus in federal policy upon oil and gas is because oil and gas represents about 27% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions. It's the largest single source. Um, but uh, the if you stand back for a minute and think, well, okay, well, um, in the total fuel cycle of oil or natural gas, what part of that is represented by the upstream oil and gas sector? And that's only 20%. 80% of all of the emissions occur from the downstream. That, that you know, most of that at the final combustion, in other words, at the end of the, the tailpipe. That's where the emissions occur. It's a, con it's a consumer issue more than a producer issue, if you look at it on the whole fuel cycle basis. But we're in, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, um, Newfoundland and Labrador, where we're producing oil and gas, um, because of the emissions kind of stand out, uh, uh, they become a, they become a target, uh, and um, the uh, there will be uh, what you're as you're suggesting there will be some very significant jurisdictional issues uh, that will have to be dealt with in the courts. So the consumer is being targeted um, as the major contributor to emissions in the form of carbon taxes, uh, fuel taxes. Uh, what else we got going on? Um, ah, the banning of internal combustion engine sales by, is it 2030? I, I can't even remember now. All sorts of, pardon me? It's 2035. 2035. In, in, in theory, well, in theory, uh, there will be uh, purchase, or sorry, the, the focus on sales. The sales of internal combustion engine vehicles will cease as of 2035. But uh, in the meantime, starting in 2025, uh, there will be um, a phased uh, increase in the limitations on the sales. Uh, and uh, and that, I mean, that's a very interesting issue in itself because um, they can tell the um, automotive companies what they have to sell, but they can't tell the consumer what they have to buy. Um, and so they can tax the them. Well, what the, what the uh, they could tax them and they are taxing the fuel. Uh, what the automobile companies will probably do is they will um, uh, transfer the costs uh, of manufacturing the uh, electric vehicles onto the internal combustion vehicles, raising their, their price and so and so that becomes ever more expensive to buy the internal combustion vehicles, and the and the auto companies can offer deeper discounts on the sale of electric vehicles. So that that's how how they'll have to manage it uh, over the course of the period from 2025 to 2035. Oh boy. Um, the question I want to ask is: Is this stuff actually going to change the climate? And before I ask, I guess I already did, but I want to point out something. If our governments had bothered to look at the bigger picture uh, in relation to global warming in particular, you, it's very plain to see that in the 500 years previous to when the government has focused on uh, the, the, the massive increased temperature 
which was, I think, the last 150 years. In the 500 years previous to that, when there was very little industry and way less people, the temperature actually raised faster and uh, to, a, to more of an extent than it has in the last 150 industrialized years. Like, how in the world? To me, this makes no sense what they're trying to do, just looking at the big picture. But how in the world can we have so many governments and so many people with so much power putting these policies on us that I, I would say will not accomplish the goal that they're trying to accomplish? Like, is do you do you think that they can mitigate climate change with these actions? Well, I, I I'm not a scientist, so I, I don't get into a discussion about the the, the, the scientific issues. I'm, I'm mainly focused on the question of whether uh, it is likely, uh, given uh, what is economically and technologically uh, feasible, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions to the extent that, that they say are required. That is, to basically eliminate their use by 2050. It's only 20, just over, over 27 years. Um, and I, my my view, and I've written many many articles on this for the French Science. Is no, that's not that's not feasible. It's not it's not feasible in technological terms. It's not feasible in economic terms, and it would require governments to to use powers that basically usurp the freedom of most people. And and I don't think Canadians will accept that. Um, you know, we, we we will get to the point where uh, the public itself is so disadvantaged by uh, a whole series of climate policies and, and interventions into their lives that they'll simply say enough you know we, we will no longer go on supporting governments that do this um, but uh, to, to uh, let's say in some environmentalist dream you could completely eliminate all greenhouse gas emissions in Canada uh, so that we was zero um, Canada represents 1.6% of all of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And the, um, all of the growth in greenhouse gas emissions is occurring in the developing countries, not in not the developed countries. So if we completely eliminate our emissions, it would make so small a difference to the global emissions level that you, could, you cannot measure it. It, it's 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 it basically what I'm saying here is that these emissions reductions are not being done to change the climate or to change the temperature or alter extreme weather events. This is pure virtue signaling, symbolic virtue signaling. Uh, and I mean, I hate to hate, hate to sort of put it in those stark terms, but that is exactly how I see it, having studied this for a very long time. I I agree with you, and the prize that we get for this this false virtue is catastrophic impacts to the lives and the prosperity of Canadians. Like I, when I say catastrophic, I mean catastrophic. There are families out there who right now they can't afford their energy costs or, or their food costs because everything is impacted to this extent. And I, I wonder, I keep asking myself, where is, the tipping point, and I'm not talking about David Suzuki's mythical tipping point. I'm talking about a societal tipping point when people finally start to say, enough is enough. We we are not going to destroy ourselves because of your failed ideologies. And that, that brings up another thing. There's two, there's a series of conversations here. One of them is, is uh, carbon dioxide a detriment to the planet or is it a benefit? That's an entire conversation on its own. Then there's this other conversation about what policies do we need to enact in order to deal with the answer to question number one. But question number one hasn't even been answered yet. And here we go just charging full bore into this net zero fiasco. And that's one place where Daniel Smith, our premier, and I definitely do not see eye to eye. She talks about Alberta meeting net zero goals and working with industry uh, to, to create new investment, basically, moving money into these carbon capture schemes and whatnot so people get rich i don't agree with it but there are people standing up um are you aware of what's happening in the, happening in the netherlands right now yes i am well they, so they are, I mean, well, what's happening ahead. there is that the 
um, the scope of the policies that are being implemented to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions uh, has gotten the most press because of the focus on what, ha what has been happening in terms of the oil and gas industry, which is, there's no question that that has been uh, particularly targeted and victimized. But um, what's becoming increasingly apparent uh, now in the Netherlands and elsewhere is that every single sector of the economy is going to be as adversely affected as oil and gas has been. Uh, and mm -hmm. the, their focus in the Netherlands, of course, is on uh, the uh, requirement of the, the Netherlands government to significantly reduce uh, the, the um, use of ammonia uh, as fertilizer, which, of course, is based upon natural gas, uh, because that is allegedly you know, a contribution to, uh, to climate change. Um, and the farmers are saying, well, if we can't use ammonia um, and, and uh, you know, we'll go out of business and, and the government is saying, well, fine, we're going to push you out of business, take over your farms um, and significantly reduce food production. Um, this, yeah. if, if, we, if we did this globally, um, it, it takes us back to the point you made a little bit earlier, you would be significantly reducing the production of food in the world. Um, and you would achieve emissions reduction by starvation. And, and you're right, eventually you hit, you hit a wall. Um, I don't know where that wall is. I, to tell you the truth, I have been trying to figure out a way to make people more aware of it. Um, but that takes us into another area. The, the, um, the, the mainstream media in Canada does not present um, a balanced and objective view of the advantages and disadvantages of climate policy. Um, every single uh, political party in Canada, with the exception of the People's Party of Canada, is in principle in favor of the course that we're on now in terms of climate policy. Every single one. Every major media. There is one. I, I, I will let you know there is at least one who is not, and that's the Independence Party of Alberta, uh, whose leader is Pastor Archer Pawlowski. Okay, no, I'm saying at the, at the at the national level, the only one. Oh, okay, federal the, level. The, yeah. Federal level. At the federal level, the only one is the People's Party of Canada. They they question uh, fundamentally whether we're on the right path with respect to uh, to climate policy, but all the rest are, are on on board. Uh, so the the and and that's 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 just the political parties. The um, the public by and large supports it as well, but in, in many ways, the public very heavily influenced by non-governmental organizations yes. that are able to, um, you know, have control of the media and, and to extensively uh, lobby and, and demonstrate publicly. Uh, and they, they and, and as you probably know, though almost all of them are registered charities. So they're supported by tax dollars. Um, the people who are stand on the other side of the fence, the, if you will, the climate change realists or the climate change skeptics, whatever you want to call them, um, are in a tiny minority, and they're and they're very poor funded. So it's very difficult to tell the story that you're offering me an opportunity to tell here today. So it's what's not, happened not, here is. These, these NGOs, I just had to collect my thoughts there because my head, uh, it gets spinning thinking about what's happened to us over the last few decades, which is, it's on me because this has all happened really accelerated in the last 20, 25 years. My entire voting age, my entire time to be responsible and, and get involved in things, I didn't do it. So this is on my shoulders and I feel obligated to do something now. So these NGOs have come in and they have created this parade by doing protests, by misinformation, by using horribly flawed computer climate models, you name it, ad campaigns, whatever. They've, they've created this parade of people who want to fight for something, who want to be virtuous and, and fight for something like, like people fought for their rights back in the day. And in doing so, they, this parade, uh, they created this parade now the governments, they feel like they have to get in front of that parade in order to make government, to get power and to get authority and do things. So they have to make concessions, even though they know or they may know that that isn't the right path. They don't stand up and, and, and 
be leaders and say, no, this is the, these are the errors there. If we want to be prosperous, this is what we have to do. It's too hard for them. So instead, they just they just pander to the to the wacko, greeny environmentalist demands, no matter how outrageous they are. I mean, $1.3 trillion, that's nothing, right? 27 countries, no problem. We have to do it. Otherwise, the Earth, Earth will be on fire by 2016, says Al Gore. So this we have we have a huge problem here. Society infiltrated with um, people who have their own interests in mind, not humankind. Governments who have been unwilling or unable to stand up and do the right thing. And massive fallout in horrible government policy ca causing catastrophic impact to the Canadians uh, because of it. These are some serious problems. And your comment about the media only being one-sided about it is, uh, I mean, that's, that's the it's the final nail in the coffin if you ask me because there's so many people who still believe this lie yes and and you know you you scratch your head to try to see a way out uh the I mean, part of it would be to um you know strongly uh endorse uh free speech on climate, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I have been in uh, the past invited uh, to speak as a member of a panel, you know, that had um, people who were uh, supporters of current climate policy and opponents of current climate policy. Um, and I've accepted gladly to do that. But whenever I've done that, and, and I'm not the only one, there are, other, there are many other people other than me who um, are um, knowledgeable in this area and perfectly capable of, of addressing it, and I in I think fairly coherent terms, um, they've accepted you know the uh, invitations to speak on this as well. Every time we do, the people who are supporting current climate policy back out. They they, are, they refuse to be get themselves in a situation where they're even in the presence of what they call a climate denier. Um, you know, as though, as though we're, we're involved in, you know, akin to Holocaust deniers. Um, so you, you can't have a, you can't have a, a, a coherent, intelligent uh, debate on this topic. And un, until we can get to that first point, it, it's, it's very difficult to, to begin to change the political situation. So getting back to COP27, and I agree with what you just said there. And I, I think that's the challenge is, is it's not just changing people's minds anymore. It's changing their hearts because when you start talking with an opposing view, all of a the sudden they hate you. I mean, believe it or not, people actually phone my restaurant and they, they tell my staff, some of them being like 16, 17 year old young, young women, death threats to me because my views are, are different than theirs. Like the hate and the like the the seething anger that boils to the surface when you present a view on climate or um covid or or anything really these days is it's something that i've never seen in my life i mean we used to get angry but we'd go and have a beer afterwards together it's not like that anymore it's getting dangerous well, that's right. I mean, it, it, that that problem, of course, is particularly uh, evident in the United States, where, where both sides of the political divide are so hostile to one another. But I, I too, noticed that occurring more and more in Canada. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I try to discuss these issues in, in terms of facts, you know, it, but um, for the most part, there's a real reluctance to get involved in discussing it at the level of facts. It, it tends to be predominantly communicated about it in terms of emotion. And, you know, we're all going to die. You know, we're all going to die. Well, no, of course we're not all going to die. It's a, you know, it, it's, it, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. No, of course it's not an emergency. Um, I mean, you, you were referring earlier there to uh, the question of how this, the pace at which temperatures are rising. Well, I mean, the actual number is that since the middle of the century, global average temperatures have risen by about 1.1 degree Celsius. 1.1 degree. That's that's well within the 
limits of natural variability. It's catastrophic. Um, the ice cubes in my Caesar melted the other day all on their own. Yeah, exactly. But but what causes the panic is the projections of models, of, of econometric models, ah. um, as to what might happen uh, a century from now. And, and those models um, have been consistently wrong. Uh, the, 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 the actual changes in temperatures that have occurred over the course of uh, the period, you know, since the 1970s when we can actually uh, accurately measure them with satellites, uh, has been well outside the, the, the range of, of the IPCC's uh, modeling. Um, and, and yet, um, you know, you, you can't have that discussion. You, you're, it's the second you start to talk about the, the, the problems of the modeling, you, they, they go back to the recourse of, well, you're a denier. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it's a very frustrating area to, of public policy to, uh, to work in, I can assure you. Yes, and I, like and you, I, mean, I, I hear you. I hear you. You know, the, the frustration that, that one must have in Alberta or Saskatchewan or, or Newfoundland Labrador or, for that matter, northern Canada, you know, where they're, they're being told they cannot develop their oil and gas resources. They cannot develop their mining Insanity. resources because it, because it will uh, cause uh, an increase in greenhouse gas emissions. But um, that development of their resources is precisely what allows them to master the climate they live in and thrive and flourish as human beings. That's, it is so counterintuitive. It's, I can't, yes. I can't even, that's what my kids would say. Uh, I can't even. When, when you think about it, what is Canada? Canada is a, a large Northern country that has had uh, the ability to sustain an advanced economy with higher standards of living precisely because of the competitive advantage we've gained by rent of our resources. It's you know, our resources. They've been plentiful and reasonably cheap. That's what's given us our standard of living. And basically what the climate policy is saying is that we must make those resources scarce and expensive. That we must eliminate the competitive advantage which has allowed us to have the standard of living that we have. And we're doing this for the sake of the planet. That's what so they're is saying. It, is it fair to say you may interpret this this argument they're saying not as we need to reduce fossil fuel usage to um, improve hum humanity, but it would be entirely the opposite. Because if you look at the quality of life and average uh, length of life and those kind of statistics, with the inception of fossil fuel powered energy systems, our quality of life, our length of life, everything went way up. The amount of food we produce, um, world hunger was reduced, disease was reduced. Like the overall, the benefit to humankind was exponential with the inception of the use of fossil fuels. Absolutely, and that remains the case today. I mean, we're still at the point where eighty-two percent of the world's primary energy consumption is based upon fossil fuels. Uh, it, it, it's four percent comes from renewables. Four so percent, and that's if we get rid of it. That's what, that what happens of, according to that uh, statistic. So, well, I mean, well, what, what that means is that um, what that means partly is that, as you just said, our prosperity is based upon very heavy use of um, available resources that we have, oil, gas, coal in particular, and, and other mineral resources. Um, and what we're being told is that we have to... Um, turn our backs on that, reject the use of that, and could go completely to an untried set of technologies that are significantly more expensive, and we have and to flawed. switch to them, and we have to switch to them 100% in 27 years. I mean, um, how anybody can find that a credible proposition is beyond me, but I, I deal with it every day. And then the, the answer that you get is, well, we're saving the planet. You know, and and uh, you know, people don't ever get really seriously engaged in a in a conversation about well, how really are you going to get there? Because it, the 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 route that you follow is as you another term you use. It's anti-human. It's anti-human to try to do that. It is.
I could have swallowed this pill if they had said something like, we need to transition to nuclear, right? Clean, efficient nuclear. It is by far the most efficient, cleanest form of energy we have on this planet to date. We've mastered it to the point where we don't see Chernobyls anymore, so that's not a thing. Uh, and and we, we could use nuclear to phase out, kind of, mostly phase out fossil fuels. But you, we don't, you, you because could. even... Even part, I just got to finish this because I rant and then I forget. But even that clean form of energy, uh, when it was being celebrated in the 60, 50s, 60s, and 70s, when it was rolling out, the greenies loved it because there was no pollution. Well, that eventually wasn't good enough because it's not about reducing environmental impact through the use of energy. It's about reducing human impact, period. Which is impossible. Rant. Which is impossible. I mean, the, unless the, we die. There have yes, unless we all unless we all die, uh, there have been a number of studies done um, in the United States, in particular, uh, which have attempted to um, estimate uh, how much you would have to increase the production of non-fossil fuel energy uh, by 2050 if you're going to uh, completely displace uh, oil, natural gas, and coal, and basically. Uh, what it has said is that you, you you have to build a new nuclear reactor every day from now until 2050 somewhere in the world to attain that so wow. well it's not going to happen this is not going to happen no uh, no if um, we started 50 years ago sure well but but as as you noted i mean nuclear energy is a, a proven uh, and reliable source of energy but it has um very strong opposition because it's just focused on the, the disposal of high level radioactive wastes a problem incidentally which um uh, you know we came up with a solution to in canada about about 40 years ago but the, that the it doesn't matter that we've got it technologically solved according to the public perception egged on by the anti-nuclear ngos it's not solved so and that's not just in canada that's in almost every western country so um the the excuse me the proponents of, de of decarbonization have become fully strong opponents of all the other energy sources that could conceivably replace it so they're they're basically left saying that we have to embrace the impossible. You know, we have, we have to we have to embrace use of of um, energy sources that are not technologically um, uh, mature, uh, that are expensive, and that can't be produced in the in the, in the numbers of, uh, a lot. Um, and when you think through the logic of that, then that means basically have to sharply reduce all energy consumption so and then how do you reduce all energy consumption well you you you, you have a serious long-term recession and you reduce the population and you move so, 1.3 trillion dollars from wealthy countries to poor countries <laughs> well, that's the part, part of the trip part of the trip for them so we started off talking about COP27. We went a little bit sidetracked, but that's okay because it's what we're talking about is kind of the the, the foundation to the, the conversations that happened at COP27, but they fail to focus on facts. Instead, they focus on feelings and they use junk science to promote this agenda, which is zero carbon or you, you said something interesting. You said carbon reduction not carbon dioxide reduction. They also say carbon reduction. And I wonder if that's a Freudian slip seeing how we're carbon-based life forms, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, but back to the, the COP27. So this group of global leaders, I'll say, is committed to phasing out anything that emits carbon dioxide, apparently yeah, including well, human beings. Yes, but but let let me let me tell you, if I may, um, what they plan to do with respect to um, loss and damages, because that that the um, that's the big issue that is going to dominate uh, the period from now until the next COP, 
which that's the topic that was added for the next meeting yes um what what they agreed was that they would establish um another committee an important committee that would meet three times over the course of the coming year and it would come back uh to the next uh conference of the parties number 28 uh with its recommendations as to how to um operationalize the term they use the um loss and damages uh, issue um the problem with that is that it's an unsolvable problem it is unsolvable um because um no one has yet defined what the cause and effect relationship is between climate change and these loss and damages no one has ah. found a way no one has found a way to quantify them even in terms of categories let alone in terms of costs good point so if, i i could theoretically say well the united states and their climate actions or inaction has caused my restaurant to experience less customers this week so they should pay me exactly you could say that and 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 somebody would have to try to prove that um but even if you could do all of that um there is no agreement as to how this amount of money this you know we're talking trillions let's let's just use a trillion dollars as one example how With a trillion dollars would be shared among the countries that would pay and there's no agreement among how it would be shared among the countries that would receive it. uh that and that same issue arose in with respect to the 100 billion a year that supposedly was being was to be spent until you know between 2020 and 2024. um so um uh those issues cannot get solved they're not solvable they're not politically solvable and they will bring this back and and there will be yet another um fest in in uh this time of the united emirates think about it by by the way um uh one of the things people really have to understand is that uh, a lot of this is just simply about process um between cop uh, 26 and cop 27 there were 1400 meetings of different united nations committees to discuss this um as you said there were 377 canadians in the delegation but there were 4500 people at cop 27. this is an a lot enormous, of airplanes yeah this is an enormous process that employs hundreds of thousands of people and all it's of big business people, yeah big business they they have a stake in having this go on and on and on and it will until we say enough is enough and fire until, them all until uh basically some of the people whose ox is getting gored finally stand up and say no more no more wow well that this is a it's been a lot to digest and we're you know there were some other questions i had but we're uh, creeping up on just coming up on the hour here but this is uh i guess the question i have is what do we do how do we fix this well as i mentioned earlier the, the first step is to get to the point where we can discuss it intelligently and and, and then and not be censored by a reason of wanting to have you know, a, a, a discussion about it that's step number one step number two is i think that the the various uh organizations across canada that are uh now uh, involved in climate realism need to, to collaborate and organize uh much better you know we need to work together right now we're all we're all desperate um uh third i i think that the people who have strong views on this need to bring those views to the political parties uh, directly you know, and and make sure that they're they're their members of parliament are aware that you know, people are not all accepting of this catastrophe premise. Um, and uh, uh, you know, there needs to be, as you said, more uh, consideration given to maintaining our standard of living, improving our prosperity in future, and taking actions that are not gonna take our freedoms away. Uh, those are, those are the th my recommendations as to where we start. 
human flourishing should be the goal, not net zero, in my opinion. Absolutely. So on that note, uh, that comes from uh, a man who what I would consider my friend now, even though we're not really friends, I've just met him once. But my friend Alex Epstein, that's a, a quote from him, and it's in his book, Fossil Futures. Uh, and now this is an, a completely unsolicited endorsement for Alex Epstein. But for those of you out there who want to know more about uh, the impacts of carbon dioxide and the other side of the story about how humans uh, use energy and use oil and gas, please visit um, www.energytalkingpoints.com. That's Alex Epstein's site. And I want to point out one really interesting thing. There's a study in there. And the study is the impact of elevated CO2 levels on the, in the planet. And what it shows is that there is no tipping point. What it shows is that as we increase our carbon dioxide, um, the temperature of the planet goes up to a certain point, then it plateaus. There is no fire and brimstone. There is no trees lighting on fire and oxygen on fire. It plateaus. And it brings us back to a climate that we may have had 1,000 or two or 3,000 years ago, theoretically. Uh, this is one study that is never shown in the mainstream media. It's never included in any climate debates. As a matter of fact, in science, as far as I recall, when you're looking at data, you always slice off the data on the edges, the outer edges of data, because it's generally the, the stuff that's got more errors in it. And you focus on the data in the middle. What we're seeing right now is focusing on the extreme um, projections and models forecasting extreme climate that's what we're focusing on so please folks check that out and uh is is there a place where uh the viewers can go and check out any of uh, your work bob do you have a website or anything like that um no single website there's i have over 200 articles on the friends of science uh blog so uh, on I, and i've written on virtually every aspect of uh, climate policy there i would strongly urge you to to go to that blog and, and please contribute to the Friends of Science. They're, they're, they're a great organization. Yes, absolutely. It costs money to do this stuff. It really does. And, uh, you know, if we're, if we're working on something as significant as making sure that human beings can prosper, I would think that it would, is likely worth, you know, a little bit of change or a few bills here and there. So uh, be generous to the folks that are, that are fighting and pushing towards the right thing. One suggestion I would have for how we can deal with these issues and these problems is we come together, as, as Bob was saying, as human beings who want to flourish. We create a parade that the governments want to get in front of. And the parade is based on truth and reality and facts, not your feelings. And we build that parade so big that the governments have to acknowledge it and they have to bend a knee to the demands of real human beings. And one way to do that is by joining the Alberta Prosperity Project. And the reason I say that is because as this movement grows, as this organization grows, government pays attention. Our voices get louder and louder. And of course, it costs money to do these things. So we need your support financially as well. But when we build these parades as the, the external NGOs did years ago that started us into this mess, we can dig ourselves out. But we can only do it together and we can only do it with your help. So please, if you haven't already, uh, get your membership at albertaprosperityproject.com. Donate if you can. And uh, we look forward to standing with you for truth and freedom and prosperity and not the alternatives, which is not so pretty. And I would like to say thank you to Bob for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and your wisdom. It was fantastic. I've seen lots of comments about how this is one of the best webinars we've done. Uh, people were absolutely thrilled to, to hear what you had to say, especially considering you came from a background within the federal government working on these policies. So the, uh, you know, the experience and wisdom you have is unlike anything we've probably heard before. So a big thank you from the folks at Alberta Prosperity Project. It was my pleasure, uh, and uh, I'd be glad to come back again if, if you have me. Absolutely. I'm all for it. Uh, I'm going to be unavailable for a little while, though, because in my pursuit of the truth, I want to actually see what's happening as a result of some of these climate policies that governments around the world are enacting. One of those places, as we've discussed previously, is the Netherlands. Dutch farmers have been told they have to reduce their fertilizer input thereby reducing their crop output, 
thereby making it unsustainable for them to farm anymore. But the government has come in so graciously and said, don't worry, give us your farm. We'll buy your farm from you. And now they're saying, you must sell us your farm in the name of climate. And the farmers are having none of it. They're standing up, they're protesting, they're saying enough is enough. This is climate policy in action. This is climate policy. The, the catastrophic results are happening right now. And I've uh, dropped everything I'm doing. I bought a ticket to Amsterdam. I leave tomorrow and uh, I'm flying to Amsterdam and I'm going to drive around the Netherlands talking to farmers and, and finding out what's going on and trying to bring this home to Canada because Europe, what happens in Europe with climate policy comes to Canada next year or the year after. So it's almost like having a crystal ball going there and looking at this stuff. In addition, there's a few other places I want to visit. Uh, if you folks out there feel like you would like to support my trip, you can do so by uh, going to the Whistlestop Facebook page and sending me a message. And um, I'm very excited to actually go and, and uh, see with my own eyes the impacts of unchecked poor climate policy uh, at, the, at the hand of a... Uh, I don't know if I, what would you call it? An irresponsible government that's not putting their people first. So there you go. Going to Amsterdam. And that's all I got. It's 10 after 7. So thanks again, folks. And I hope you tune into the webinar next week. I'm sure that uh, it will be a great one, whether I'm there or not. <laughs>